Hi everyone, welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis podcast. We're all about helping you understand the text of the Bible, helping you understand what it meant in its original context, giving you insights into what scholars are saying about the text here, and most importantly, we want you to develop an understanding of probably what Jesus meant in the original context, what was Jesus trying to get at. And that's particularly important with today's passage. So let's get into it. We're at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, Say this when you pray, Father, may your name be held holy. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive each one who is in debt to us, and do not put us to the test. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him in the middle of the night to say, My friend, lend me three loaves, because a friend of mine is on his travels has just arrived at my house, and I have nothing to offer him. And the man answers from inside the house, Do not bother me. The door is bolted now, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up to give it to you. I tell you, if the man does not get up and give it to him for friendship's sake, persistence will be enough to make him get up and give his friend all he wants. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For the one who asks always receives, the one who searches always finds. The one who knocks will have the door open to him. What father among you would hand his son a stone when he asked for bread, or hand him a snake instead of a fish, or hand him a scorpion if he asked for an egg? If you then, who are evil, know how to give your children what is good, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, that's the end of the reading today. You're probably thinking that sounds kind of familiar. It sounds kind of like the Our Father, but it's a bit of a different version. And that's basically right. What we have here is Luke's version of the Our Father, which is shorter than Matthew's version. And the one that we pray in Mass and as Catholics regularly is Matthew's version. So Luke has given us a shorter version, which we will look at today. Let's start by thinking about the context. So Jesus is on the way from Galilee to Judea. So he's going up to Jerusalem. So getting towards the end of his life and he's doing ministry along the way. Verse 1, Jesus was in a certain place praying. So we don't know where exactly this occurs, but it appears that Jesus is praying out loud, as he often does, and his disciples are quite impressed with what he's doing. Perhaps they can hear some of the words that he's praying. When he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, rabbis in that time would commonly teach their disciples the best way to pray. So a rabbi would have a certain way that they thought their disciples should pray, and they would teach that to their disciples. From this passage, we learn that John the Baptist did exactly that. John the Baptist taught his own disciples how to pray too. Here, Jesus' disciples, who had become accustomed to seeing Jesus pray, they want to know what Jesus' advice is about prayer. They want to enter more deeply into prayer themselves. And this is what Jesus says, Say this when you pray, 
Now notice Jesus, Jesus' words here, say this when you pray. He's actually giving them a certain formula to use in this particular prayers. Often you might hear certain Christians saying that Jesus does not like formulaic prayers or repetitive prayers. That is not correct because here we have in this verse, Jesus actually says, use these words when you pray. So at least in some cases, Jesus is okay with using specific words. Now, of course, he does say in Matthew's version of this, don't babble like the pagans do. So he hasn't got a problem with repetitive prayers per se. It's more about the intention of the prayer that he has a problem with sometimes. So I think it's important that we say that up front. Jesus has not got a problem with repetitive prayer or formulaic prayer, provided the intention is correct. And now he's going to teach the disciples what's called the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. Now, in context, Jesus is basically giving the disciples what they want. They've asked for how to pray, and he's giving them a short, simple prayer, which expresses all of the basic needs of the Christian life. As you go through the Our Father, you'll notice that it starts by focusing on God, and then it moves to focusing on the needs of the prayer. And that's actually how our prayer should be structured, really. We should always start with God, not with ourselves. Now, this version in Luke we have today, in Luke chapter 11, it's shorter than Matthew's version. If you want to get the full version, Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 to 3 is where the longer version of the Our Father is that we recite regularly. So Luke is giving us a summarized version, whereas Matthew is giving us the full version. So just keep in mind that Luke has left out some parts of what we know is the full version of the Our Father. Luke's version has five petitions. The first two relate to God, and the last three relate to those who are praying. Now, before we get into certain phrases here, one thing that's really important to say is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is basically, you could say, a dictionary or a summary of Catholic teachings, there's an entire section of the Catechism about the Our Father, and it breaks the Our Father down phrase by phrase, just like we do in this podcast except the Catechism actually has quite an extended theological reflection on the Our Father. So if you want to really dig into the Our Father, I would say the best place to go is towards the end of the Catechism. So it's in paragraphs 2759 to 2865. So it's basically 100 paragraphs of the Catechism all about the Our Father. And we can't do that justice really in this podcast. We're just going to highlight a couple of things about the literal sense of these words. So starting at verse 3, Jesus begins the prayer by saying, Father. Even this is quite profound. Jesus teaches that Christians should see God as their father. That was a fairly radical concept in Jesus' time. Now, sometimes in Jesus' time, they would refer to God as father in a collective sense. But here, Jesus teaches that individuals can refer to God as their father. And that was radical. Jesus' followers can have an access to an unusually deep intimacy with God similar to the intimacy that Jesus has with God, although obviously not the same. In the original Aramaic, Jesus here probably used the word Abba for father, and that's quite a term of deep intimacy. And it makes sense that Jesus would encourage his disciples to pray to God this way, because we know that other things Jesus teaches in Luke's gospel about God includes things like this. Jesus says God is merciful in chapter 6. He says God is giving in chapter 11. And he's attentive to human needs in chapter 12, verse 30. And later in the gospel, Jesus emphasizes that God forgives sins as well. So given everything that Jesus says about God, it makes sense that he would encourage his disciples to understand God as their generous father. 
So he starts a prayer, Father, may your name be held holy, or more literally, hallowed be thy name, is what this phrase is. Hallowed be thy name. Now, what does that mean? There's a few different ways of understanding this phrase, actually. Well, to the Jewish mind, God's name was kind of a shorthand way of referring to God himself. And the Jewish hope was that one day all nations would treat God's name as holy. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 36 in the Old Testament, it expresses the Jewish hope that all people would see God as holy. So this phrase, hallowed be thy name, it could be interpreted either as a hope, as in a prayer that Jesus, that God's name would be treated as holy. So it's um, expressing a hope that we have about God. Or it could just be a simple declaration of a truth, which is, God, your name is holy. That's always how I've understood it. It's just stating a fact, God, your name is holy, as a way of introducing the prayer. But some theologians think a better way of thinking about this is a request, may your name be treated as holy. And obviously that would include Christians acting in a way that glorifies God's name. Jesus goes on, he says, your kingdom come. This is referring to the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus has come to reveal, and it's a key theme in the Gospel of Matthew. We know from the Gospels that Jesus has come to invite all people to be part of God's kingdom and expanding God's kingdom. And the prayer here is, your kingdom come. So already the kingdom is already present in Jesus when he arrives. Jesus here teaches that its members must pray for its fullest realization. We must pray to God, your kingdom come that it would come in its fullness. He goes on, give us each day our daily bread, or give us this day our daily bread. Now, the Greek word here for daily is a really interesting one. It's epiusios, and it's a very hard word to translate, actually. It doesn't appear anywhere else in ancient Greek literature, except in the prayer of the Our Father, epiusios. We're not entirely sure what it means to say epiusios bread, There's various proposals that scholars have suggested. Maybe it means bread for today. Maybe it means bread for tomorrow or the future. Some scholars think it means bread for existence or bread that we need. And a very interesting proposal is that it means something like super substantial bread, in which case it will be referring to some sort of supernatural bread. Given all those possible meanings, and we can't be sure what the right meaning here is, but basically when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, It could refer either to physical bread. So in that case, in the Our Father, the Christian is asking God to keep meeting their daily physical needs. They're trusting that God will do that, as he did for the daily manna needs of Israel in the wilderness. Remember in Exodus chapter 16, every day God would provide a special bread from heaven so that they could keep living. Now, of course, in later Jewish and Christian history, the manna in the wilderness was seen as having a spiritual component as well, meaning that it's a special bread from heaven, a a supernatural bread from heaven. So given that, maybe Epiusios bread is a reference to supernatural bread of some kind, maybe the Eucharist. Some people think here that Jesus, when he says, give us this day our daily bread, it actually refers to the Eucharist. And that would make sense given the context of the prayer, because if you think about it, this prayer is really kind of like the the Christian pilgrim's prayer on their way to the fullest revelation of the kingdom. And so it's here the disciple is asking for the bread that they need for the journey to the kingdom. It's an interesting way of looking at it, but we can't be entirely sure. Verse 4, Jesus says, forgive us our sins. Now, notice that the Christian has to ask for it. 
Often you'll see some Christians say that as soon as we accept Jesus into our life, forgiveness is automatic for the rest of our life. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. And here is one place where it's quite clear that forgiveness is not automatic. We have to ask for it if we want it. We have to keep asking for it. Jesus goes on, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive each one who is in debt to us. Now, the word debt is used here. That was actually a Jewish metaphor for sins, which calls to mind the image of a lender releasing someone from the debt he owes. So, in some Jewish circles, it was common to refer to sin as a debt. And this is something Jesus discussed in the mission mandate earlier in Luke. Remember in Nazareth, when he stood up and gave his sermon, he says, I've come to bring liberty to the captives. And he talks about the jubilee and the year of the Lord's favor. As part of that discussion, there's all these overtones of being released from debt, which really means being released from the burden of sin. So it would certainly fit with other things that Jesus highlights in the Gospel of Luke. Notice the equivalency here, though. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive each one who is in debt to us. Basically what that phrase means, if you think about it, and it's actually clearer in Matthew's version, it means forgive us our sins to the extent that we forgive others. And there's a lot that could be said about that. Jesus and God only forgive us to the extent that we forgive others. And this is actually unpacked further in Matthew's version of this. And then Jesus finishes by saying, do not put us to the test or lead us not into temptation. This is another phrase that could have a few different meanings and there's a lot of different controversy about it, particularly in recent years. One way of translating this would be lead us not into the test or you could say do not subject us to the final test. And it could also mean lead us not into temptation because the same Greek word there can be translated temptation or test. Lots of controversy about it because it implies, if temptation is the right word here, it implies that God can allow people to be tempted. Whereas later in the New Testament, the letter of James says God does not tempt anyone. So how do we reconcile those? One reconciliation here would be to say that a better translation of the word here would be test. Do not put us to the test. God does test his people sometimes. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it clearly says God tests people. So when Jesus here says that part of the Our Father should be, do not put us to the test, that is a legitimate request. Some people think that a better translation is do not subject us to the final test. So maybe it's a reference to the great period of suffering that the Jews expected to be associated with the coming of the Messianic age. And indeed, there was a great period of suffering as the Messianic age was being born, and that was largely around the Jewish-Roman War in 70 AD. So this could be a subtle reference to the trial that Christians are going to go through in the years leading up to 70 AD. And that would be a legitimate interpretation here, if it's the singular, do not subject us to the test or the trial. But again, it could be a more general meaning, do not subject us to any test. Its meaning is going to largely depend on the last phrase of the Our Father, and that phrase is, deliver us from evil. And that phrase itself can be translated, deliver us from the evil, or the evil one, and there's a lot of discussion about that. But in Luke's version, we don't have the phrase, deliver us from evil, so we won't discuss that particular one, but it is in Matthew's version. So that's basically the end of Luke's version of the Our Father. Matthew's version is longer, so if you want to hear a slower, more in-depth analysis or exegesis of the longer version of the Our Father, 
then we cover that on Thursday of week 11 in ordinary time. So you might like to go back and look through the podcast archives for that. So Thursday of week 11 in ordinary time. So we've looked at Luke's version and a lot of scholars feel that it's kind of like a new covenant Exodus prayer. So remember in the Old Testament where the Jews come out of Egypt into the promised land, there seems to be a lot of overtones to to that similar thing in the Our Father. For example, they don't want to be tested like the Israelites are in the wilderness. So lead us not into the test. And also there's a reference there, as we said, to bread, bread from heaven, which of course occurred in the wilderness as well. And honoring God's name is holy. That's a big deal in the book of Exodus when they come out of Egypt. So there's a lot of interesting references here. So some scholars think that this is kind of like the new covenant equivalent of an Exodus prayer. So it's focused on the disciples' needs in journeying from this life to the next life, the promised land. And that's quite a cool way of looking at it. Now, in particular, Jesus has just told them what to say in prayer, which is the Our Father. And now, in a sense, you can look at this next passage as he's going to teach them how to say it, how to go about doing prayer. Verse 5, Jesus said to his disciples, so Jesus is directing this at his disciples. He knows that they're going to be the leaders of the future church. So he wants them to teach these principles to future Christians, probably. He's going to give them a short parable here to help them understand how to pray. And you could call this parable the parable of the persistent friend. It's got a few different names. So here's how the parable goes. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him in the middle of the night to say, My friend, lend me three loaves because a friend of mine on his travels has just arrived at my house and I have nothing to offer him. So picture the scenario. There's a person and a friend of theirs who's traveled a great distance has just arrived at their house. Now, in that culture, it would be a great shame if you could not provide uh, food for a guest, particularly one who's come such a long way. It would be quite shameful to not provide food. But Here in this case, his friend has arrived, he hasn't got any food, so he quickly gets up and goes to another friend and knocks on his door and says, quick, can you give me some food? I need to provide my guest with food. So he's knocking on the door saying, please give me some food. Verse 7, the man answers from inside the house, do not bother me. The door is bolted now and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up to give it to you. So this is a fictional scenario. It's a parable that Jesus is telling, but it's pretty realistic, I think. If someone's knocking in the middle of the night asking for food, then it's quite reasonable for for the person inside the house to say, go away, it's the middle of the night, I'm asleep, my family is asleep. And in fact, here it says, I cannot get up to give it to you. So it's like he's saying it from bed. The man hasn't even got up. He's calling out from his bed saying, I'm not going to give up, uh, get up to give it to you. In fact, the Greek here implies that the man is consistently bothering him. He's been knocking for a while and the man is saying, go away, I'm not going to, uh, to get up to give it to you. But now Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you, if the man does not get up and give it to him for friendship's sake, or more literally there, you can translate that as because he is his friend, I tell you, persistence will be enough to make him get up. Now, there's some interesting Greek words being used here. Our translation has this as persistence will be enough to get him up. It uses the word persistence, which I think is good, actually, because a lot of other translations say because of his importunity, he will rise. That's not an English word we use all that often anymore, importunity. So I think persistence is good. The Greek word here is actually closer to shameless audacity. So because of the person's shameless audacity in the way he keeps knocking, then the man will get up. 
So Jesus here teaches that, look, even if in this, you know, in the parable, even if the man does not get up to give him bread because of he's his friend, which is possible, even if he doesn't get up for that reason, he surely will get up because the man is so persistent or so shamelessly audacious. So in this sense, this mini parable here is similar to the parable of the persistent widow, which is in chapter 18. It's the same basic meaning, which is that persistence in prayer produces good fruit. There's more to say here, though. The next part of verse 8 says he will get up and give his friend all he wants. That's what our translation says. A better translation there would be whatever he needs. So keep in mind that this is primarily thinking of needs, presenting needs to God. Now, what Jesus has said so far is about having perseverance in prayer. That's the basic meaning here. So Jesus wants his disciples and probably all Christians to know that they can approach God with daily concerns. Now, it's not that God does not know our needs. In fact, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that God already knows what we need before we ask. So that is certainly not why Jesus encourages persistence here. It could be more of a psychological thing where Jesus wants us to learn to trust completely in God, to be totally dependent on him. And by repeatedly presenting our prayers to him, by being persistent with that, that will actually teach us to be totally dependent on him. So that's what he said so far, and now he's going to continue, but he's going to sort of shift the focus a little bit to help make it clearer in a way. Verse 9, Jesus is now going to give three phrases, which mean basically the same thing. Here's what he says. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I'm sure you've all heard these words before, and they've probably been given different meanings in the different sermons you've heard. What's this about? Well, Jesus is clearly encouraging his disciples to ask for something and to ask repeatedly for it. So the Greek here actually implies that they need to keep on doing it. Keep knocking, keep seeking. So Jesus here is talking about doing something repeatedly. And if they do that, the teaching here from Jesus is that God will give them to it. They will receive what they're asking for. The next few verses make it clear that Jesus is talking about praying to God. So, again, the teaching is about having confidence and persistence in prayer. The person in need, the Christian, can boldly keep asking God, who is their father, without embarrassment. And they should be confident that God will respond and provide help. Really, Jesus is giving his disciples encouragement and confidence that God will provide for their needs if they're persistent in prayer. But here's the thing that isn't really answered at this point. What is it? that Jesus thinks they should be asking for. What exactly are they asking God for here? All Jesus says is, ask and it will be given to you. But ask for what? That hasn't been answered. Does Jesus mean ask for literally anything and God will give you literally anything? Maybe some prosperity gospel preachers might take this verse that way. But actually we get an answer. Jesus is talking particularly about asking for one thing in particular. And we get an answer at the end of this passage. And we'll leave, we'll leave it until we get to the end of the passage. But keep in mind that Jesus is talking about asking for something in particular. He says that if you persistently ask for this thing then you'll get it. So we need to be careful here when we're interpreting this passage. It's not a blanket statement saying God will give you whatever as long as you keep being persistent in prayer. That would not be the right reading of it. Verse 10, Jesus says, for, now keep in mind that word for means Jesus is going to explain what he's just said. So he's going to give them a reason for why he's told them to keep persisting in prayer. Here's what he says. The one who asks always receives. The one who searches always finds. The one who knocks will always have the door open to him. And again, the Greek here implies continuous verbs. 
asking, seeking, knocking. So the one who keeps on asking receives. The one who keeps on searching finds. The one who keeps on knocking will have the door opened. Again, the teaching is basically the same. Jesus is encouraging his disciples that if they ask God consistently and persistently, they will receive from him. That's the message he's trying to get across. So he's telling them to not be discouraged if they don't get an answer straight away. Now, our lectionary translation makes it a little confusing here. Our lectionary translation adds in a word. It says, the one who asks always receives, the one who searches always finds. That's actually not in the original. Um, If you look at most Bibles, they won't have the word always there. And I think this is probably not a good translation that our lectionary has. It makes it a little misleading because it does, if you add the word always in there, it implies that God is always, 100%, going to give you anything you ask. At least that could be one way that people might read this with the word always in there. So keep in mind, always is not a word that actually belongs in the text here. It just says, the one who asks, receives. So does this mean that Jesus' disciples are being guaranteed to get everything they ask for? Probably not. Now, of course, it is saying that they should have confidence that God will provide their needs. Absolutely. We get a clue from Matthew's gospel about what kind of things Jesus might have in mind here. Earlier in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about seeking in terms of the kingdom of God. Remember, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all the rest will be given to you as well. So certainly earlier in Jesus' ministry, he's thinking about seeking in reference to the kingdom of God. So maybe that's what he means here. If that's the case, Jesus is basically teaching that if you seek something in accordance with the will of God or the kingdom of heaven, you will receive it. The father wants to give all who ask the blessings that will enable his will to be realized on earth. So if you ask something in line with God's will, God will give it. Certainly other places in the New Testament back up that teaching as well. So it wouldn't be ask for whatever you want and God will give you for whatever you want. But if what you're asking is in line with God's will, he will give it to you. Jesus goes on, verse 11. What father among you would hand his son a stone when he asked for bread? So imagine here a child who's asking for food. He wants bread. This is a rhetorical question, right? Because no father is going to give his son a stone if he asks for bread. So it's it's a rhetorical question. No one would do that. Then Jesus gives two more versions of this short phrase that have the same basic meaning. He says, who would give him a snake instead of a fish? Or who would hand him a scorpion if he asked for an egg? It's the same basic meaning. Clearly, no father is going to give their son Uh, a snake or a scorpion if they just want food like fish or an egg. That would not be a good father. And of course, his disciples would have agreed with that and said, well, no father would do that. So that's the point. Verse 13, Jesus says, if you then who are evil, now that's strong language, isn't it? Evil here just means in contrast to the perfect goodness of God. You who are human, who are not perfect like God is, know how to give your children what is good, or more literally know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So this, like the earlier parable, it's an argument that we can call an argument from the lesser to the greater, and Jesus often uses arguments like this. The idea is if evil people or sinful people know how to give good gifts to their children, even though they're sinful, then surely the perfect good Father who is not sinful knows how to do this much more. That's the point Jesus wants to make. He's saying that, If earthly fathers understand this principle and they always give their children good gifts, well, then surely our heavenly father, who is good, always gives good gifts as well. 
But notice here in Luke's version what Jesus says God is going to give if you ask for it. He says, If you then who are evil know how to give your children what is good, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Sometimes we miss this. Matthew's version of this doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but Luke does. And Luke is consistently emphasizing the Holy Spirit. More than any other gospel, Luke keeps reminding us of the role of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Jesus in Luke's gospel is always on about that. So here the teaching is that God will give the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks for it. And that's in line with what we said earlier. God will give anything that is in line with his will. And of course, it's his will to give the Holy Spirit to people. So Jesus' teaching here is that if you ask God for the Holy Spirit, he will give it to you. This is developed more in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we have this rich theology about the Holy Spirit uniting us to the Godhead, making us able to participate in the divine life of God. And that's what Jesus has come to enable us to do, to participate in his own divine life. So given here that Jesus specifically says God will give the Holy Spirit if you ask for it, we probably need to interpret the earlier parts of this based on that. When Jesus earlier said, seek and you'll find, etc., that was probably in reference to the Holy Spirit. I think that would be a good way of understanding this passage as a whole. The whole passage is about asking God for the Holy Spirit. Probably it could mean more generally God's good gifts, but the focus is clearly on the Holy Spirit. Jesus' overall point is, ask with confidence that God will provide us with everything we need for living life in the kingdom of God while we're on this earth. God is a good father, and we should have confidence as Christians that God will provide us with everything we need for our pilgrimage on earth, if we're in line with his will. So the very next thing that happens in Luke chapter 11 is Jesus casts out a demon, and there's this whole discussion about Uh, can Satan be divided against himself? So that's a really interesting passage. You can hear that one on Friday of week 27 in Ordinary Time. Let's now turn to the Catechism to see what it has to say about the Our Father. So as I mentioned earlier, there's a whole section of the Catechism which is devoted to going through the Our Father slowly. So that will be paragraph 2759 to 2856. And we're not going to go through all of those paragraphs, but I think it's well worth having a look at when you can. So paragraph 2759 to 2856. We'll now look at a few other places in the catechism which reference uh, Luke's version of the Our Father. So paragraph 520. In all of his life, Jesus presents himself as our model. He is the perfect man who invites us to become his disciples and follow him. In humbling himself, he has given us an example to imitate. Through his prayer, he draws us to pray, and by his poverty, he calls us to accept freely the privation and persecutions that may come our way. Paragraph 2601 is about Jesus' own prayers, and here it actually quotes from Luke 11. So, paragraph 2601, He was praying in a certain place, and when he had ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. In seeing the master at prayer, the disciple of Christ also wants to pray. By contemplating and hearing the son, the master of prayer, the children learn to pray to the father. So that's quite a powerful paragraph too, isn't it? Paragraph 2759, this is a summary of the entire Our Father. Jesus was praying at a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. 
In response to this request, the Lord entrusts to his disciples and to his church the fundamental Christian prayer. St. Luke presents a brief text of five petitions, while St. Matthew gives a more developed version of seven petitions. The liturgical tradition of the church has retained St. Matthew's text. So that covers a lot of the things we said earlier about the different versions of the Our Father. Paragraph 2632, this is about prayers of petition. Christian petition is centered on the desire and search for the kingdom to come in keeping with the teaching of Christ. There is a hierarchy in these petitions. We pray first for the kingdom, then for what is necessary to welcome it and cooperate with its coming. This collaboration with the mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit, which is now that of the church, is the object of the prayer and of the apostolic community. So here the Catechism teaches us that the general structure of the Our Father, going from petitions about God to petitions about us, is a model for how Christian prayer should look in general. There's an interesting reference in paragraph 125, and this is actually in this section about the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And it's answering the question of why is there a Sacrament of Reconciliation after baptism? Here's what it says. The Apostle John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And the Lord himself taught us to pray, Forgive us our trespasses, linking our forgiveness of one another's offences to the forgiveness of our sins that God will grant us. So there we have it clearly spelt out in the Catechism that we need to keep asking for forgiveness regularly, even after we become a Christian. And to the extent that we forgive others, that will be the extent to which God will forgive us. That is the clear teaching of the Our Father. Paragraph 2613, this is in about how Jesus teaches us how to pray. Three principal parables on prayer are transmitted to us by St. Luke. The importunate friend invites us to urgent prayer. Knock, and it will be open to you. To the one who prays like this, the Heavenly Father will give whatever he needs, and above all, the Holy Spirit who contains all gifts. This is a really important paragraph in understanding today's passage. Here, the Catechism basically tells us how we should interpret this parable at the start of today's reading, what the Catechism calls the parable of the importunate friend. Here, the Catechism basically tells us that we should interpret it as... To the one who prays, like the importunate friend, knock and it will be open to you. The Father gives whatever he needs, and above all, the Holy Spirit who contains all gifts. So that's paragraph 2613, and that's one that's well worth looking at if you want to make sure you've understood this passage correctly. Paragraph 2761, this is about the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. The Lord's Prayer is truly the summary of the whole gospel. Since the Lord, after handing over the practice of prayer, said elsewhere... Ask and you will receive, and since everyone has petitions which are peculiar to his circumstances, the regular and appropriate prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is said first as the foundation of further desires. So here the Catechism says that if you want to receive good gifts from God, you need to be praying the Our Father first, and of course that fits in with Luke's flow here, because what happens in this chapter? Jesus gives the Our Father and then he tells us to persist in prayer. Paragraph 443, this is an interesting one. This is about Jesus as the only Son of God. Jesus distinguished his sonship from that of his disciples by never saying, Our Father, except to command them, You then pray like this, Our Father. And he emphasized this distinction, saying, My Father and Your Father. So this is an interesting bit of theology. This is in the part of the Catechism about how Jesus 
is the Son of God in a completely unique sense. And one of the ways the the Catechism explains it is by saying that whenever Jesus talks about God as Father in the New Testament, he typically says it to his disciples as though it is your Father. He never sort of groups himself with the disciples when he talks about God as Father. And the only time he ever says our Father, as in he groups himself with the disciples, is actually when he's giving them giving the disciples a prayer to use word for word. So even then, Jesus is distinguishing himself from his disciples. So that's an interesting argument to make. Jesus considers God his father, but in a different sense than the rest of the disciples. Paragraph 728, this is about Christ Jesus and his role in revealing the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not reveal the Holy Spirit fully until he himself has been glorified through his death and resurrection. Nevertheless, little by little, he alludes to him, even in his teaching of the multitudes, as when he reveals that his own flesh will be food for the life of the world. He also alludes to the spirit in speaking to Nicodemus, to the Samaritan woman, and to those who take part in the Feast of Tabernacles. To his disciples, he speaks openly of the spirit in connection with prayer and with the witness they will have to bear. And of course, that last line there is, Uh, There's a reference here to Luke's chapter today, where Jesus speaks to his disciples openly about the Spirit. We'll leave it there for today. I hope you learned something new. Please share it around if you have, and we'll continue to look at Luke in the coming days.